everyone, and welcome to the COG Podcast, where we talk about all things public education. My name is Meg Aquilano, and we are recording from the Granite State, otherwise known as New Hampshire. We call our podcast The COG for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is that I believe teaching is the profession that allows all other professions to exist. It's The COG or the center from which the spokes of our democracy originate. Reason number two is New Hampshire is the home of the Cog Railway that climbs Mount Washington, which is the world's first, yes, first, mountain climbing Cog Railway and has been in operation since 1869. So there you have it. In today's podcast, we are going to be referring to an article that was published in October 2021's ASCD Educational Leadership Magazine. And there was an article by Justin Reich called The Fifth Season. And I just found this article to be very applicable to what our schools um, across the country are going through and potentially preparing for. So How can we shift learning models and build social resources to prepare for future interruptions like we are continuing to experience right now, but what we really started experiencing in the spring of 2020 and through the entire school year of 2020 through 2021? So the name of the article is called The Fifth Season, which I just think is the coolest name, and it's taken um, from a book by N.K. Jemison, who wrote a book in 2015 that um, basically talks about another season being added to what we experience. So we've got fall, winter, spring, summer, and with some of the climate changes that we've been seeing Um, This particular author described that fifth season um, and how it relates to just our systems and our institutions. Um, And what they talk about is basically that this year's kindergarten class may not be experiencing the only global pandemic that they face in their lifetimes. So while it's sad, it's also very important to consider that last year, um, those shutdowns may prove to be an important preparation for an uncertain future. So, and this isn't meant to be fear-based at all. I'm not into um, fear tactics. I think the focus for me would rather be on just going in with our eyes wide open and being prepared to do a better job as we move forward. So in the future, schools will have to put greater weight on approaches that have robust or resilient um, structures in place that can really adapt to interruption. So, um, Approaches that would work well if schools need to switch between in-person, hybrid, or fully remote modes of learning. So the authors challenge us with some great uh, questions. Basically, how do we plan for this uncertain future? 
and they really highlight four principles. So the first principle is talking about how to address universal broadband and having access to technology. So that whole concept of techity. And I think what is really cool how they summarize it is just that at the turn of the 20th century, when we as a society um, decided that electric lights were going to be necessary in not only just urban settings, but also rural settings, um, that we needed to have some kind of national initiative that would promote electrification across the country. And that was a federal um, launch. So here we are in the 21st century, and it, it sounds like approaching the broadband um, accessibility topic is if we approach it like we approached the federal electrification launch, then we would be able to supply broadband and tech access in a much more thorough way. So here we are in the 21st century, and it's important to view broadband as a utility rather than a luxury good and develop similar national efforts that are aimed at universal broadband. So local school leaders can't roll out fiber optic cable to urban housing complexes or, you know, remote rural homes, but they can certainly explain clearly to voters, school boards, policymakers, how these vital connections are for the future of learning. Um, and a combination of state and federal agencies can expand so that the technology access is also focusing on learning, which I think is just something that can truly no longer be overlooked. And another question that they challenge us with is developing or refreshing um, our pedagogies so that they can be um, pliable, flexible to the interruptions that we will see if, you know, we continue to experience this fifth season. So prior to the pandemic, to the COVID-19 pandemic, it seemed like ed tech could be considered as, you know, a reasonable investment for improving schools. Um, but it was by no means definitively the, you know, guaranteed investment, and especially for improving student experience and learning, teaching and learning. Um, and so now that schools have gone through this experience, it would probably be pretty safe to say that the schools that had invested in technology prior to the COVID-19 pandemic were far better prepared for the overnight transition to remote learning than schools who basically had to do it on the fly in 
April of 2020. So most schools in the United States went remote in the middle of March, I would say March 13th to be exact. Um, and I know that date and it's just engraved in my memory because my husband, who is a varsity boys basketball coach, had made it, their team had made it to the state finals in the spring of 2020. And their state final game was scheduled for that night, for Friday, March 13th. And they had it canceled the morning of the 13th. Um at 10 a.m. to be exact. And so that was really when at least New Hampshire schools had pretty much just accepted the fact that this was happening and our governor um, declared remote learning. So it's, it's one of those things where if we have a shift in our pedagogical thinking um, to more innovative instructional frameworks, then it would most likely slash definitely be a much more um, effective and efficient transition if and when we have to go remote or to, you know, a hybrid setting again. So I think what I love, or I guess I shouldn't say I think, I know what I love about what Justin Reich says in this article about changing our pedagogical approaches is that really focusing on a competency-based pedagogy, um, or it's sometimes called mastery learning, can really help us as we prepare for these uncertain futures. So a lot of people are um, making a lot of districts, a lot of states, and New Hampshire is definitely a leader in competency-based education, have made these shifts. And competency-based learning, um, it, it covers a diverse family of approaches, but the main idea is to have schools and educators try to very carefully define learning targets and then help students make individual progress toward those learning targets. So in a traditional, more industrial era model, um, there's the focus was more on time and, and a fixed mindset, like a fixed time. So it was all about seat time and minutes and credits. So perhaps that's a 47-minute period um, and the learning was very variable um, with some students meeting expectations during the allotted time for the topic and some students falling short. And like the industrial era, those students just get pushed along on the conveyor belt known as pre-K through 12 public education and just get dropped off at the next grade level, whether, whether they are competent um, or not, or if they've mastered the content or not. So with a competency-based model, that conveyor belt goes away because it's no longer useful for today's learners, and it becomes much more um, so less emphasis on keeping students progressing along on that conveyor belt in lockstep, 
but more focused on cycles of learning. So cycles of evaluation, feedback, remediation, or acceleration. And schools that have had zero experience with competency-based learning or mastery grading, um, of course, the pandemic was a terrible time to introduce a completely new way of thinking um, for educators because it's so hard to replace your grading scheme while you're just spooling up all sorts of new online operations and tools. And it was just a really stressful time for educators. Um, but the schools that had some familiarity with these approaches were able to draw upon them and help students differently um, and flexibly and adjust to new schedules, new routines, new expectations, because they already had shifted away from the concept of seat time and had uh, basically, you know, just enveloped the idea that some kids are going to learn things in a certain amount of time, some kids are not. So we're not going to make all the kids wait, and we're going to reach back and pull those kids up that need it and not just push them along and give them that false sense of competence. Um, so I think learning more about the competency-based model is a fantastic way to future-proof our teaching and learning. Um, and, you know, there's there's tons of examples of this going on right now. So, the, you know, some people do place-based education. Some people do expeditionary learning, like the EL model. Some people have community-based education. Um, and it doesn't really matter, you know, which category or candidate you're looking at. I think the, the goal is to really just expose educators and people in the community to competency-based education. And, you know, just to kind of extend that thought, sometimes we, I mean, I would say most times we just have a really tough time with change. So change can signal things going away. Change can signal um, judgment that what we have been doing is it must therefore be wrong or not sufficient. And when we think of change in that way, like with a fixed mindset, it can really um, make people feel horrible about themselves and their practice. Or it can just make people feel judged and feel like they've been doing a terrible job because they've been doing, you know, what they were exposed to as a student and that's what they know how to do. So I think the important thing to share with our listeners is that change, when we look at it from a growth mindset perspective, is something that can bring all sorts of Im just improvements, tweaks, innovation, and it can be something that just represents that since we know better, now we can do better. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with what we've been doing in public education, but perhaps now we know more and know better so we can do better. So I think that's what I certainly try to emphasize with teachers and 
um, you know, again, with teachers, it's, it's a self-paced, personalized, um, you know, progression during professional development. Some teachers just grasp right onto the concept of competency-based education, um, with standards, standards-based, um, curriculums and things of that nature. And some teachers struggle with it, but as they learn more, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I've heard parents say to me um, in, you know, in situations where the district that, you know, I was in at that time was was transitioning to competency-based or in some cases standard standards-based, and they are they are slightly different. So I I do want to just differentiate that. But I did have parents say to me, you know, I don't want my son Danny to have an opportunity to reassess because he didn't study for the algebra test and he didn't do his homework consistently. And the only reason why he's reassessing is because he wants to be able to be eligible for the basketball team. And, you know, this particular parent was saying, I just think that we're, we're lying to our kids if we tell them that reassessment is an option because in the real world, reassessment, you know, that that doesn't happen in the real world. But I would suggest that reassessment can and does happen in the real, in the quote, real world, because of course our schools are definitely the real world, real building, real parking lot, real doors, real windows, real people. Um, but our schools, you know, are modeling for our kids what happens outside of schools in in our, you know, overarching society. And what happens is, you know, if we have a driver's test and a student doesn't pass the driver's test, they have the opportunity to go back, relearn the skills that they didn't do well on, and then retake the driver's test and actually get their driver's license. Or if it's the MCATs, they can, you know, take it as many times as they want, PSATs, SATs. Um, there's all sorts of examples where we as community members have the opportunity to reassess. So I think it's important to have that conversation with people and, you know, just give ourselves permission to um, just even be open to change is, is what I would suggest. So um, another suggestion that these, um, these authors mention in the article is also just teaching fewer topics, but in greater depth. So it's that old, you know, do you teach a mile wide or do you teach an inch deep? Um, or maybe it's opposite, actually. Like, do you teach a mile deep and an inch wide? Maybe that's what it is. Um, and that that is definitely something that just allows for more um, response if we do have to just, you know, overnight go into some kind of remote setting. Because when we're doing more of those survey courses, it's it's harder if you miss a couple days, you're just, you're missing like entire topics potentially. But when you're going into greater depth, it can really um, allow for teachers to have more flexibility in addressing or accommodating interruptions because the students have some orientation to a topic already and they can pursue independent investigations, you know, and they can, um, 
you know, continue to prepare on something that they've already been working on. So I think, you know, having greater depth that in fewer topics is, you know, it can be very beneficial. Um, and it, you know, obviously during periods of greater interruption and disruption, it's, that's, it's probably a good way to approach things. And the last thing that they talk about in this article, um, and for those of you that are just joining or are coming back to focus, um, we are pulling this information from an article titled The Fifth Season, which comes from a novel by N.K. Jemison, um, who in 2015 wrote this book and this education leadership article from the October 2021 um, ASCD magazine is addressing just some of these shifts as we prepare for future disruptions. Um, and the last one is, can be, you know, really um, abstract for some, and it, it's basically just addressing social welfare for our children and our families. And our teachers across the country, and I know in the district where I am now, made just heroic and colossal efforts to ensure that their students um, were, you know, that their needs were being met. The districts, the schools, just down on the grassroots level were making sure that kids were being fed, that housing concerns were being addressed, healthcare, mental health, you know, all of those things were being addressed because schools provide so much of that, so many of those services to the point where once schools closed, it was just this spotlight on how much pressure schools are under to provide free meals, meals, you know, just a safe place to potentially shower with hot water, have electricity, um, and, you know, have mental health resources and other social support. So I think they just do a great job in this article of highlighting that the pandemic revealed a lot of wrongs and imbalances in our society, but there was none as stark and profound as the, you know, what they describe as the immoral and embarrassing dependency on schools to meet the basic needs of children in an emergency. And this, you know, is it gives us a lot of food for thought. Um, and I think what we need to do is just understand that a variety of federal, state, and municipal agencies um, can expand their care of young people and families so that schools um, can focus on the one area of their specialization, which is teaching and learning. And there are some great examples of this. So Jeffrey Canada, um, who has created the Harlem Children's Zone, which can be found at hcz.org. He, this guy's amazing. He offers just a, a true model for what comprehensive supports can look like. And another model is um, the Education Redesign Lab, which is which can be found at edredesign.org. And that is led by Paul Reveal at the Hartford Graduate School of Education. And 
they promote an idea of what what they call children's cabinets, um, where leaders and different municipal departments, they, you know, healthcare workers, um, from budget to finance to, you know, you name it, can work in, you know, more of a symbiotic relationship to help support children and families. So that that is awesome. And I know there's there's far more um, examples of that out there. So to kind of recap what we've talked about, I think that, you know, this article really focused on four principles for schooling during what they're calling a fifth season, which is just, you know, talking about in addition to fall, winter, spring, and summer that with some of our climate changes, we're, we're entering into this experience of a fifth season and that universal technology access, resilient pedagogies, deeper curriculum, and stronger social welfare systems um, may not be, you know, the cure-all by any stretch, but they're certainly a start. So as we, you know, move forward and um, school leaders, you know, have to think more about what kinds of changes need to be made, um, these are just some some great thoughts that that can be kind of knocked around in our conversations. So thank you so much for joining us today. And I know this was just a pretty intense episode, but we look forward to having you join us in the future. And don't forget to follow us or like us on Instagram and Twitter. All right. Thanks everyone. Well, that's it for today's episode of The Cog. Thanks for listening and join us again next time as we continue to talk about the shifts we're experiencing in pre-K-12 public education.